Hello, constant listener. I learned an interesting fact the other day that had to do with the skull and crossbones insignia. Widely recognized today for being associated with toxic waste, or, you know, pirates of the Jolly Roger, it was used for centuries before pirates even used this symbol. Who then used the symbol, you may ask? It may not be a surprise to tell you that much originated in Catholicism during a medieval period in European history. The skull and crossbones symbol was associated with danse macabre. It also held meaning as, quote, a dance of death, unquote. That through life, we must accept that we do dance with death. Skull and crossbones are also associated with a theme called memento mori. This Latin phrase acts as a reminder or a warning stating to, quote, remember death, unquote. That by acknowledging death, it helps to assist our earthly perspectives, reminding us that we are mortal. But memento mori is more than skull and crossbones. It's almost a universal philosophy that has been seen across multiple nations. In Portugal, there is Capela dos Ossos, or Chapel of Bones, where the halls are an unusual spectacle. An estimated 5,000 corpses were exhumed and used to be displayed floor to ceiling down its corridors by the monks who managed this chapel. Again, it is not meant to be morbid. This is an old cultural understanding of honoring the dead and reminding ourselves to be grateful for the life we have now and to enjoy it and live well. In Tibet, a Buddhism practice known as Lojong, please forgive me if I mispronounce that, progresses an elevated mind by thinking on the four contemplations of a revolution of the mind. The second of these four dwells on the impermanence of death. In Scotland, Queen Mary of Scots owned a large watch carved in the form of a silver skull. It had a quote engraved from the Latin poet named Horace. That quote said, Pale death knocks with the same tempo upon the huts of the poor and the towers of kings. I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. My mother used to love to tell me the story of La Girona when I was little. It was a great way to make sure that I didn't stay out after dark as a kid. There was a film about it that came out recently, but nah, it's more Hollywood than it needs to be. I'd like to tell you the story of La Girona the way my mother used to tell it to me. My mother was a master storyteller when I was six, but I'll do my best here. Scary stories always started with the way she'd smirk out from the corner of her mouth, almost as if she could not hide the happiness she felt when she scared me to sleep. She would lean down and tuck the blankets around my body so tightly that I couldn't move my arms. She'd ask me if I was a mummy. I'd always giggle and nod my head. It was one of my favorite bedtime games we did together. Que historia esta noche? Which story tonight? Her voice had a soft coo and a gentleness that I miss whenever I think of her now. She's passed on, and talking about her can be hard because I loved her so much. La Girona! I squeaked and tucked my nose under the rim of my blanket. She asked me if I was sure. It tended to keep me up for a while whenever I asked. But I would be insistent. She sighed and agreed. 
I've translated it to English for the remainder of our conversations. La Hirona, or the crying woman, was once a very pretty woman who lived happily on a farm. She had long hair that everyone admired. Mother would always stroke my hair at this part. I could feel the soothing way the edges of her nails ran over my scalp. Everyone in town thought she was the prettiest woman alive. She had big, beautiful brown eyes that men found to be hypnotizing, and she had lovely lashes. Mother would bat her eyes at me. She was pretty, and she knew she was pretty, always saying to her abuelita that she will marry the most handsome man, and no one else will do. Her abuelita tried to warn her, there are far more important things to want in love. Because one day, a man came to town on a horse. My mother would make the sound of horse's hooves and patter her hands over my blanket to tickle me a little. He was very handsome and rich. She thought, ah, yes, I will love this man. He is a handsome man. They were happy for a few years. She even had two of his children, a boy and a girl. But as the children got a little older, about your age, she'd always point to my nose and tap it. Then La Girona was getting old too. Gray hair was growing more and more, and sickness made her thin and bony. She was nowhere near as pretty as when she was young, and her husband knew this. He started to go out at night, or sometimes for days to go gamble or find new love. But after this part, Mother was always serious. There was one night in particular. Very stormy, dark clouds came over La Girona's home. The husband had returned from long nights of drinking and gambling. La Girona got dressed put on powder and her brightest red shoes. She stood at the top of the stairs and came down to greet her husband. He pushed her aside. I don't want to see you, he said. Papa, papa, the two little children said with such joy in the other room. La Girona saw how suddenly happy her husband was. He went to them and gave them big hugs. But La Girona stayed and watched how much happiness he showed them and not her. That night, the thunder rolled as it began to rain. La Girona missed being admired. She stared into a mirror at her haggard and ugly face. A madness came over her. And La Girona woke up her children and took them outside toward the river. The storm started to pour very heavily and La Girona picked up her two kids and tossed them into the cold river. She wanted to punish them for being more loved than she. But as she was about to fish them back out again, the river began to get wider, deeper, and faster. The children screamed. Because of the rain, the river was far more aggressive than usual. The children could not swim. But as she realized they were being carried away from her, she cried, Mijijos! She turned to run down the riverside to save them. But in the rain, she slipped on the mud and her head fell right on a rock, killing her instantly. Her body slid down to the bank and into the river, 
and was swept away with her children. The town was shook and mourned their passing. A few nights later, two little boys were playing alone at that same river, skipping rocks and staying out past dinner time. From far away, they could hear someone walking over sand and rocks. One of the little boys became afraid, and the other was not. They both heard a faint, Mijijos. A mother's voice was breathy and scratchy. My mother then ruffled her hair over her face, putting her arms out in front of her like a zombie. Mijijos. The second little boy said, Let's leave, let's leave, and began to walk away from the river to go home. The first little boy said, It's nothing. As the second little boy turned back once more to call to his friend, he saw La Llorona. Before he could call out, La Llorona grabbed the little boy sitting by the riverside. Her hands pulled at his hair and turned his face to look at her. And her eyes were empty sockets bleeding out where they should have been. La Llorona was angry. This was not her little boy. So she threw that little boy into the river and kept wandering on, continuing to say, Mijijos. She looks for her children even today. She wanders lakes, rivers, and when it rains, she could be anywhere. My mother often whispered anywhere very close to my ear. My eyes were full wide awake, and I would be clutching my blanket up to my chin. I remember once as she was walking out of my room, she turned about before she flicked off the lights and said, just so you know, the weatherman did say it could rain tonight. Keep an eye on your window. She winked at me and flicked off the light before closing my door. It didn't rain that night at all, but I remember sitting there waiting for it to happen. I loved this story and would even tell it to my friends on the playground. But years passed and I grew into the good age of 17. Just childish enough to do something stupid but old enough where if I got into trouble, it was my own fault. One of the things my friends and I liked to do was go find a place to chill out and goof off by Buffalo Bayou. For those who aren't from Houston, it's this large river that runs through Houston and it cuts across Texas and eventually runs out to the ocean. There is a perfectly nice park near Buffalo Bayou, but our group would make a small drive to an unknown spot so that we could be loud, rowdy, throw rocks, and start a small pit fire by the river. Some of the best life conversations I've had with my friends were by this river. But on this one night, we were sitting and talking to each other about school, figuring out what we would plan for the upcoming summer, and I was just laying on my back letting the hazed feeling of happiness I had take me over. I loved my life in Texas. The slight wind blowing was warm, and the humidity at night wasn't so bad. Evening wind would roll over your body and lift your shirt a little. I remember that feeling, and it was really nice. I listened to the way the brush and trees rubbed leaves and branches together. But as I was laying down, I heard a faint call. I wasn't quite sure what I had heard, so I sat up to listen for it again. I called out, Hola? ¿Quién está ahí? I could hear my voice echo around the open forest around us. 
Mateo, Diego, and I were pretty far outside of the city. I was pretty surprised to hear any other voices that were not from the three of us. I shook my friend Mateo's arm and nudged Diego too, but both of them were just as sleepy as I was. We'd all fallen asleep because the fire pit that we had built was completely burned out. Mijos. This time, I saw her. A woman in a long white dress and bare feet emerged from a few trees across the riverway. She wasn't fully in my sight, but I saw and heard her pushing through the brush. Hola! My friend Mateo called over. The woman snapped her attention to the three of us. Her eyes were a bright blue that shone out the way a dog does when a light goes over them. That made me feel a weight drop in my stomach. I saw her stretch open her mouth, and from that, she screamed. It sounded horrible. It was a guttural wail, not even a breathy cry like I'd imagined it from Mother's story, but agonized throat scratching howl. A scream that was so low and harsh that my friends and I immediately jumped to our feet. We stumbled back to the car as quickly as we could. I remember getting to Diego's car, opening the passenger door, sitting inside of it, and Mateo and I look at each other now realizing Diego was behind us, but he wasn't with us now. The walk back to the riverside with Mateo and I looking for Diego was agonizing. Mateo and I didn't hold hands, but we did link elbows together. We were just too scared. Nothing happened, but we walked up to the bank where we had been, and there was Diego. He was standing there, arms at his side, frozen, and staring at the complacent river. He fell to his knees and started to cry. Fumbling, we grabbed his arms and put them around our shoulders and started shuffling back to the car to help him out. Bad luck, once more. No keys. The car was unlocked and we could still sit inside and lock the doors, but the keys had to still be by the riverside somewhere. That was probably the worst part, sitting in a glass cage while we knew La Girona was nearby at one point. In the morning, we felt better about going back in daylight to look for them. Diego refused to go back to the river at all. Mateo and I eventually did find the keys, got back to the car, drove back to Houston, not talking about the night before. Sometimes Mateo and I will talk about it, but Diego always seemed to look like he was about to cry if it was mentioned. What's funny is when I saw La Girona, I didn't think about Mother's story. I hadn't thought about it in years. I assumed a 17-year-old wouldn't need to worry about children's stories. The piece of the tale that I haven't told you yet? When you hear La Girona cry, it can leave a curse on you. I found out years later why Diego never wanted to talk about it. He'd once confided to Mateo. That night, Diego sat by the bank, dumbfounded and frozen in fear. Mateo and I had left him in a hurry, not realizing he wasn't right behind us. And La Girona was wailing. She pointed a long, bony finger at him and began to walk toward him. Her ankles hit the waterline and with each step sunk further and further into the waterway, 
the water waded around her body until it overcame her head. That was when we found Diego and him staring at the river. He was waiting for her to rise up on his side and take him. Mateo and I found him first. When I finally felt comfortable enough to tell my own mother about seeing La Girona, she just smiled. She put both of her hands on my face and said, Well, now you've got a better La Girona story than me and gave a playful slap on my arm. I don't know if she fully believes me. Mateo, Diego, and I, as you can imagine, found other places to hang out since then. But I never quite knew what to make of seeing La Girona. Thank you, Constant Listener, for being here with me today. I wanted to give a quick shout-out to Jay Shuttlesworth, Ponterby, Bump of the Night, RNHO, and Cool1961 for leaving reviews for Copper Shock on Apple Podcast. I cannot tell you how much I really appreciate you guys taking the time to review Copper Shock, and you left such kind notes, it really made me smile. Next week's episode of Copper Shock is going to be an original tale written and narrated by me, Tasha Wheelhouse, and made for you, constant listener. I'll see you soon. <laughs>